One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the first episode of the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. You know me from YouTube, the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel. Benji, you may not know him. He has a YouTube channel as well called Benji Nyson. He's courageous enough to use his real name on the internet, unlike me, where he covers pro cycling manager gameplay. But he's much more than just a pro cycling manager gamer. Benji, he's created databases for the game, and he is an avid fan of pro cycling, almost as much as I am, I'd say. He's Belgian. I'll let let him introduce himself in, in a second, but... When I wanted to pick a co-host for this pod, I wanted someone as passionate as me about cycling and someone who follows it just as much as I do. And I think Benji probably knows more about the who's who and the strengths of the riders in the World Tour and pro-continental and continental level than I do on just about anyone else in the world. So I'm here in Brisbane. I'm excited for this first episode. We got no Wedu sponsor things to insert, but I'll just let Benji briefly introduce himself and let him tell you where he's calling in from hey guys my name is benji i am calling in from belgium as he said i am indeed a pro cycling manager youtuber as they call it but i try to follow cycling as much as possible to just because i have a passion for the sport i love watching it i love following it as much as possible i love the technicalities of the tactics and such in races and i'm very intrigued to start this with you because firstly you're a kind guy so it's obviously fun to start something like there's an adventure with someone that I can trust in this kind of style of podcast that has the knowledge that I don't have. You're compatible with me in the sense that you've got all the knowledge when it comes to the watts and so forth. I'm not that 100% into like calculating every detail of the watts per kilo and such. That's where you come in and you're so good at that. So those are your incredible words after you gave me those ones earlier today. So thank you very much <laughs> for the introduction and let's get this thing started. Yeah, so just so you guys guys and girls know what this podcast is going to be, I know there's a lot of cycling podcasts out there in the market. This is pure race analysis and maybe some tangential news related to the racing. That's what this podcast is going to be. We're going to be doing every single Women's World Tour and World Tour race, and including, didn't we decide to do two pro races as well? Oh, every yeah. single race. So there will be upwards of five podcasts a week during the Tour de France. We're going to be doing a daily recap podcast, same for the other Grand Tours, to be honest. So it's going to be your daily fix for pro cycling and what happened in the races. And I don't think there's anything like that in the market at the moment. So let's get into it. Our first race, GP de Bleuet, the women's race, it happened first. It started at 5 p.m., Brisbane time, Benji. Were you you even awake? I was actually awake because I had to work this morning. And I noticed that La Flamme Rouge tweeted that they had to like put the start a bit later because of a neutralization. I'm not 100% sure what happened there, but apparently something happened at the start of the race. Do you know more about that? No, I haven't really seen too much of that. I was was expecting the race to be about three hours later. Usually races start about... (laughs) 9 p.m. at the earliest Brisbane time. And so I, I came back from walking the dog, got a notification on my phone, hey, the race has started, where's your live stream? And I thought, oh, God, what what the hell? But in case you don't know, 
GP de Plouet is a old French classic. It's in Brittany. In, it's in the north of France, right? And the women's race was 101 kilometers long. It's not a flat race and it's not a pure sprinter's race, but it has no extended climbs. It's just constant climbing. If you look at the profile, if you maybe go to Pro Cycling Stats or you've seen the, the parkour, it's just constant up and down, up and down. And the women's race, to be honest, I found more interesting than the men's race just because they had pretty much all the stars except for Mariana Vos. It, it was a stacked field. Uh, the start list, well, I mean, just strong, you know, had Anna van der Breggen, Chantal van den Boek-Black, um, Mariana, oh, not Mariana Vos, sorry, uh, Annemiek van Vleuten, obviously, Mariana Vos wasn't riding. So Annemiek van Vleuten, who hadn't lost a race until today, uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini, Katrina Nui-Adoma, Marta Bastianelli, Amy Peters, Leah Kirkman, uh, Lizzie Dignan. So a whole host of strong names. Cecily Utrup-Ludwig, who won Giro dell'Emilia maybe a week ago, who I just did a video on. Previous winners was Anna van der Breggen last year and Amy Peters in 2018. Lizzie Dignan had won the race twice and Annemie van Vleuten won the race nine years ago in 2011. So stacked field. They did circuits. It was a series of circuits. You're going to see the same at the European Championships uh, in maybe tomorrow or in two days. They use pretty much the same course, and we saw riders wrecking the course from, say, Netherlands under-23 men's team whilst the men's race was happening. But I joined the race with about 50 Ks to go. Um, where did you watch the race from, Benji, or what, at what point did you start watching? I started watching about 33 kilometers in because I also had to work today, but I do have a rough understanding of what happened before that. I know there were crashes at the start with about 100k to go involving both, I think, Van der Breken and Van Vleuten. And just plenty of action before I started watching as well, but I tried to follow it on Twitter as much as possible to get all the action in as well. Yeah, and I think I want to focus on just the main decisive part of the race, which was, I mean, this was British weather. The women raced in much more difficult or really nasty conditions than the men's race. It was raining almost constantly. It was a typical British day and on narrow roads, not great road surface, um, protected from the wind for the majority of it, but some crosswind sections. The race-defining move was a break from Lizzie Dignan, British rider for Trek Segafredo, and Lizzie Bank, Elizabeth Banks, who I think came... Yeah, who won a stage in the Giro Rosa last year. So two British riders went clear. And then there was a large group chasing. And that group chasing had Longo Borghini, Trek rider, teammate of Lizzie Diagnan, and she was blocking or, you know, trying to mess up the chase. But it had Mavi Garcia, Annemiek van Vleuten, Cecily Ultrup Ludwig. Uh, Anna van der Breggen got dropped from that tra- chase, but the chase still had Amy Peters in it as well. Um, current European road race champion. And the chase was just really disorganized. And a lot of people were saying, I saw, oh, well, the reason for that chase being disorganized was because everyone's scared of pulling enemy Van Vleuten to the line. They don't want to work with her because you work with her and then she'll just attack and then it's race over. She's won five or five races this year. And I'm sure there was a little bit of that, but I think. It was some pretty poor strategic decisions from Mitchell and Scott 
today, actually, that might have cost that group as a whole and cost Anamig van Vloyd. Now, Benji referenced the crash that happened at 100 k's to go at the start of the race. Maybe that meant that Anna van der Breggen wasn't feeling great. That was why she got dropped earlier than expected and maybe why AVV didn't have her best legs. But van Vleuten had a teammate with her in the break. And I'm not sure if you saw this, Benji. She had a teammate, Grace Brown, pretty strong rider for Mitchell and Scott, in that break with her. And they, on multiple occasions, they tried to close the gap, which it, it, it teetered between 55 and 30 seconds for a long, for maybe 15 to 20 kilometers, maybe longer. Kept teetering in that in that sort of region. And obviously, Dignan and Banks were working really well together because they're incentivized to try and, you know, no Annemiek van Vleuten there and you're in a break with someone, put the foot down and work together. But Grace Brown tried to attack across when that gap was 55 seconds rather than pulling for Annemiek van Vleuten. And van Vleuten would have definitely probably, I think, appreciated someone else pulling for her on the flats and downhill sections of these climbs. And then AVV can go on the front of the climbs. Cecily Utrup Ludwig had a teammate, another FDJ teammate. I didn't see her at the front either. What did you think of the way Michelin Scott used Grace Brown, Benji? Did you agree with it? I thought it was actually really bad. Um, I didn't tactics. think it was very intelligent when it comes to their tactics. It sure as hell didn't really get them where they wanted to go. That is for sure. And I think that's also one of the reasons that, yeah, they basically were so in the clear towards the end. Yeah, I think what happened was it went 55 to 35, 55 to 35. Annemiek van Vleuten would go on the front on one of the climbs and she would just drive it for two, three minutes and she'd just eat in 20 to 25 seconds into that gap. And this is this is where the race was lost from that, that group, from the chase group. AVV's just done that pull that I referred to. I think it might have been like 8Ks to go, 9Ks to go. Monster pull dropped even split up the group and I think put like Lippert and Utrup Ludwig into difficulty. She finishes her turn. No one helps her. Mavi Garcia had attacked a couple of times and she wasn't looking great at the end of this race and not a good descender either. So she was struggling on the technical web descents. AVV pulls off. No one, no one takes up the chase. And then Grace Brown attacks and it actually drops Van Vleuten off the back of that chase group and obviously Elisa Longo-Borghini, who I mentioned, for Trek, she's marking every move, right? She marks Grace Brown's move, brings back the chase to Grace Brown. That attack fails. The gap goes back out from 30 seconds and then to 1 minute and 30 or whatever, and Anamik van Vleuten is cooked. I just, obviously, you know, I'm, I don't want to criticise. I'm, re- I'm more reluctant to criticise FDJ because it looked to me like their domestique for Cecily Utrup Ludwig just wasn't strong enough to contribute. She was just hanging on. But the fact that Grace Brown was able to attack multiple times when she got brought back, she then continued pulling. Didn't really make sense that they'd use her in that fashion. I thought they should have just put her on the front, get that gap to down to a manageable distance of 15 to 18 seconds, and then try and get Van Vleuten to then attack and bridge across. Um, now, maybe we don't know. Maybe Annemiek van Vleuten wasn't on her best legs today and she was trying to close the gap for Grace Brown to spring across. We don't know what was going on, but from an outsider's perspective, that didn't make sense. But anyway, 8Ks to go or 5Ks to go, it seemed pretty clear that Diagnan and Banks had gone clear. 
and weren't getting brought back, and that was true. Dogan's won this race twice, world cha- previous world champion, glittering Palmares, two British riders, and I think these riders know each other pretty well. But, yeah, Banks just kept working for Dagnan. Even into the last 800 metres, she was pulling. And I'll let you describe what happened in the last cave and your last 1,500 metres. Do you think Banks could have done anything differently or do you think it was an Yves Lampard European road race situation? I believe that in the European road race that Lampard would have done that more for a tactical um, thing that, he would have lost it anyway if he didn't pace. But here I believe that they had such a large gap that she could have betted on just doing something different because I just felt like she brought the other Lizzie to the victory, Lizzie Dignan. In the last 500 meters, she basically kept on riding, kept on riding, and she started sprinting, and Dignan went over her, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, like Dignan, she has 37 career victories, She's looked pretty good, you know, this, before lockdown. Um, she didn't look great in Strade or Giro dell'Emilia, but, yeah, 37 career victories, good sprinter, good in one-day races, previous world champion. She's won the Tour of Flanders and Strade Bianca. Like, Dagnan was sitting on Banks and playing cat and mouse in games before Banks started playing strategically because they had a 90-second gap and that chase was yeah. not really working. So... Yeah, Banks kind of made it a formality for Dignan in the end, who did win easily. Um, and they had a gap of a minute, 13 seconds over the line. Dignan first, Banks second, a British one, two. And then uh, Chiara Consoni came third, the uh, the Italian rider. And the, the peloton had actually caught that chase group containing Van Vleuten and those other riders and Longo Borghini. And so they thought they'd caught the breakaway. I'm pretty sure they did. And the classic, Consoni wins the bunch sprint for third, but she thought she'd won. If you got, I'd encourage you to go and watch the replay. Puts her hands up and starts <laughs> full-on celebrating, <laughs> and she hadn't won. She basically did a, a pozzato pretty much in the sense that you often have that in the races that you don't know who's up front, but I've got the feeling that it's a bit weird that when such high caliber riders are up front that you don't notice that they aren't caught. Obviously, I'm not a pro cyclist, so I could basically say that forever here, but if Dagen is in the breakaway, then I believe that, yeah, you should know that as you are the sprinter that needs to take control for your team at the end of the race. So I feel like that's a bit of a mistake on their end then. Nonetheless, it most likely probably didn't influence the chase anyway. I don't believe they would have caught those two anyway, even if they knew those were still up front. It wasn't the last portion of the race that they caught that chasing group. So in the end, yeah, she got fat. But she's pretty young and she's talented, so there's wonderful future for her ahead. Next to that, you said that Lizzie Dagnan obviously has a lot of victories already in her career, but it's also good for, on the mental aspect because, if I recall correctly, her last victory was in the uh, Women's Tour, the Over Energy Women's Tour last year which is already in June last year. I don't think she's won anything this year at the start of the year. And with the Corona difference, that's a year and a half, basically, almost, of no victories. So this one is sure as hell going to make her happy. Yeah, and so many riders have not won for a long time. It must be good to put their hairs in the air, as you said. And yeah, Kira Chiara, I mean, it looks to me like Kira, uh, if I was pronouncing (laughs) it in an English way. But yeah, Chiara Consani, she's obviously the 
she's the sister of Simone Consoni, who's the the lead out man at Cofidis. He, he's a pretty good sprinter in his own right, actually. So yeah, there's a lot of yeah, a lot of talent, obviously, for Consoni. She won the bunch sprint pretty easily, actually. But yeah, that was the women's race. It was very exciting, I thought, just because of the strategic. It was like when Peter Sagan in 2017, he was just so dominant for the three or four years before then. Just no one wanted to work with him. If you want to see something similar to that, watch the chase group not working with Annemiek van Vleuten in the last 40 kilometers of that race. I find it. I found it pretty interesting strategically. But yeah, Diagnan first, Banks second, Consoni third. Trek, Equipe, and you know, Equipe, by the way, I'll just mention it before we move on to the the men's race. Elizabeth Banks, obviously, she runs for Equipe Paul Carr. I'm pretty sure they were the team that had their bikes stolen before, yep. um, yeah, one of the races, like last week, Giro Emilia, and they couldn't participate. And yeah, they couldn't get them. Trek, Segafredo had their bikes stolen before Strade, but yep. yeah, good to see her getting on the podium. But on to the men's race, a, a proper classic, the Britannia Classic. It's it's a World Tour race, and as I said, it's how would you describe it, Benji? Like a, a semi classic, or where where do you see it in the in the calendar? I believe that it's a race that often goes under the radar in previous years. It's basically in the middle of the Vuelta usually. This year it's different, and because of that, I often miss it the last few years in the sense that we're watching the Vuelta stage, and suddenly it's like. Well, this person won blue, and I'm like, oh, damn, that was today. But luckily, well, it's harsh to say, but thanks to the Corona calendar, that race is brought forward a bit more, that it's in between races at the moment, instead of in the middle of a Grand Tour. Obviously, it's still at the same time as the European Championships, which we honestly could compare pretty much because it's in the same area, and that race has overlapped with the parkour of this race. But it still has its own right this year. Nonetheless, it does not have the start list as other years, which is most likely because the Tour de France is obviously starting this weekend and because that European Championships has riders that don't necessarily want to ride 240 kilometers of a classic just before they start the actual European Championships. It might be a good recon, but it's a pretty long one. Nonetheless, it is a fun race. I usually really like it. I compare it when it comes to the level of where this race is at with that German race. What's his name again? The one that Christoph won like 20,000 times. Frankfurt? Sparkassen? Sparkassen or Eisborn Frankfurt? I meant uh, the Frankfurt one (laughs) because uh, Frankfurt is still a bit more (laughs) between the the hill riders and the sprinters sometime. And because of that, I believe that we can compare it slightly with that. I would also compare it Parkour-wise, a bit with the uh, Canadese classics, but Canadian classics. But I've got the feeling that those have a way better starting list, mainly because it's in a different part of the season, obviously, and because it gives way more World Tour points than this race does. Yeah, so it's a it's a what you know World Tour race, but yeah, probably a, a semi-classic in reality. I'd say a race like Kern Brussel Kern, which is not a World Tour race, carries a little bit more prestige than this race but anyway 250 kilometers long if you have a look at the at the profile you can see just like the women's race constant climbs they've got Mur de Bretagne uh 1.5 k's at eight percent and just constant 1.5 k's at seven percent 1.7 k's at five percent just constant undulating climbs in fact 
there's really not that many flat sections at all. And so really undulate. That's why it is similar to those Canadian classics uh, in Quebec and Montreal. And it produced a similar winner today. Michael Matthews won. He came first, the Sunweb rider, ahead of Luca Metzgetz, the Michigan Scott rider, and third was Florian Seneschal. And you know, previous winners, Sepp van Mark in 2019, 2018, Oliver Nyson, 2017, Elia Viviani. Nyson won again in 2016, and even Christoph had won in 2015. So they're the sort of riders who typically won. It's rulers. And Elia Viviani is probably the only, I would say, getting close to a pure sprinter in that group. Yes. But the favourites for today on the start list were Michael Matthews was the hot favourite. Aaron Brew, you rated quite highly. I'll let you speak about him in a second. And (laughs) then it was (laughs) Florian Seneschal and even Garcia Cortina, who I want to talk about his decisions in this race today because I don't agree with them. But they were the three favourites, Seneschal, Garcia Cortina and Matthews. But why did you like Aramburu for Astana, Benji? Well, before the race started, I have seen Aramburu have some pretty good results throughout the season. He started off the Italian Classics quite great and even came out in the top seven, I think, in the Milano-San Remo race. He's got a certain punch to it and can also do a decent sprint. He's not up there when it comes to the levels of a Matthews or a Mezgetch even. But he's got the sprint you would put at a yeah top six, top seven at a Milano San Remo. So I was thinking that maybe a smaller group would reach a finish than today. Well, in the end, it was a pretty small group. But in general, if you look at the gap that was between group one and group two, you can basically count it as one group sometimes here. Now, I thought that would it would be a smaller group reaching the finish line. Therefore, I thought maybe potentially Aramburu could come out on top. but. In the end, he was just nowhere, and that surprised me, but I guess that's uh, the benefit of cycling, subverting expectations, most likely in a good way. <laughs> yeah, seventh in Milano San Remo this year, two seconds in uh, the Vuelta last year. He won a stage in Vuelta Burgos, an uphill finish last year. Uh, this is when he was riding for Caja Rural uh, ahead of Rui Costa. So, yeah, quite a handy rider, but I think... Let's just focus on the really the race defining moves. The overall picture of what happened was constant attacks and breakaways, but those breakaways were never allowed to get in the last fifty kilometers too much of a leash. I understand earlier in the race there was a larger breakaway that had more of a gap that had Remy Cavagna in it with about seventy kilometers to go. Cavagna, who's the French national time trial champion. Um, very, very strong rider. He won a stage in the Vuelta last year. He yeah. attacked those breakaway compatriots in the feed zone and went on his own very far out. Not sure, yeah, having Quickstep, having him in that early break, whether that was the best use of such a talented rider. But nonetheless, that's what happened. He eventually got brought back um, with, I'd say, I can't remember, 40 kilometres, 50 kilometres to go. Yeah, somewhere around there. And just a constant attacks from Kofidis, uh, Jan Bacalans, Emil de Hent for Wanty Group Gobert, both of those riders. Um, constant attacks from FDJ as well with some of their smaller riders. 
Movistar as well. There was a break of three riders. I think Robert Stannard, the Australian rider for Michelin Scott, into with uh, Lotus Sedal rider Van Oka and uh, Torres from Movistar. They were in a break for a little bit, but no one was really allowed to get away because education first, quick step, and Michelin Scott. Primarily those three teams were making sure that break didn't get more than a minute or a minute and 25 seconds. So what did you think of Benji Education First taking it upon themselves to work so much alongside Quickstep? I believe that, firstly, they were pacing a lot because they obviously had also Ruben Guerrero next to their previous winner, Stefan Marke, at the start here. And it seemed like they were setting him up for a bit of an attack, and he did attack for a tiny bit there, but really got nowhere because nobody really properly followed that attack. One note that I would like to say next to those attacks by Evadication first is that in the end, they were really nowhere when it comes to the results, neither. So I'm not sure what they were trying, but it seems to have been failing. Nonetheless, at that same time, one of the riders that did a lot of stuff throughout the race was Quinn Simmons. That's the name that might ring you well in the ears because he is the junior world champion at this very moment and has won plenty of races on that level. Basically, him and Marco Brenner were the kings of junior racing last year. And in the end, he was really strong today. And he did that as well at the start of the season in Omelope and Kuna, where he was racing a lot as a domestique, closing down gaps, closing down groups, making a bit of a group attack, chasing groups and so forth. And he basically did the same today. He didn't finish Omelope and Kuna, but this time around, he finished and in what a way, because he was there at the end. And that's one of the names that I'm going to keep in mind for sure. I already kept him in mind after last year, but he sure as hell has talent and he showed it today. An unbelievable race from Quinn Simmons. When I, when I mentioned that there were constant attacks in the last 50 kilometers, he was in about half of those attacks or instigating half of those attacks. He was on every hill or every rise. It seemed like he was surging. And then to finish sixth in that lead group, just behind Matthews, Emma de Hent, Fedet, Federley, Seneschal and Mezgetz, a massive performance from him. Clearly the strongest Trek Classics rider in this race or on their team, even though it didn't really look like they were riding for him particularly, but he was clearly their strongest rider today. And let's talk about, and we'll get, we'll, we'll mention why I was so impressed with him as well, another under, not a junior rider, but an under-23 rider last year, the man who I believe is the true under-23 world champion, Niels Ekhoff, from Netherlands. He's a very, very strong rider for Sunweb. He was protecting Matthews today, and if you every time you look at the overhead helicopter shot, you can just see this big figure in front of Michael Matthews. And what ha- the race-defining move, I guess, was Lotto Sedal rider attacks. We're in the last, say, three to four kilometers, attacks on the last climb. Florian Seneschal, quick-step rider, second favorite or third favorite for the race. He tries to follow the Lotus Sedal riders' move. Michael Matthews is len left, just like in Milano San Remo, on the front of the peloton, and he doesn't chase. And when I was doing the live stream, I was like, no, you have to follow Seneschal. You have to follow him. If you let these two go, and, and it ended up that Seneschal probably didn't have his best legs today. Um, I think Alessandro Fideli, Nippo Delco Provence, got into that break as well and attacked across. And 
he was trying to flick Seneschal through and Seneschal, I don't think he was playing games. I just don't think he could really offer much assistance. But anyway, Matthews turns over his shoulder and then like a classics version of Richie Port, Niels Ackhoff appears. I thought he was done for the day because he'd already been working quite a lot protecting Matthews. And he just drills it, chasing back Seneschal, causes a massive split where it's only Ekhoff, Matthews, and Luka Mesket, who is in between that Sunweb sandwich, he managed to get into that group. And Eamon de Gent as well was in that Seneschal group. And they quickly get across to the group of Seneschal and uh, Fideli. Quinn Simmons also attacked across and got into that group as well. So a massive performance from Simmons and Ekhoff. Ekhoff pulled so strongly that he not only caused that split, when he got to the group of Seneschal, he just kept pulling because obviously they, you know, Matthews would have been a favourite in the sprint. They go onto the Flam Rouge. Fideli, the Nippo Delco Provence rider, loses the wheel of Seneschal, who's on the wheel of uh, Ekhoff. Matthews is on the back of that group. Another split occurs, and it's two riders. And he's lost his man that he's supposed to be leading out for. 500 metres left. Seneschal's on his wheel, the quickstep rider. And I thought, wow, Ekhoff is so strong right now. Maybe he should just ride his own race. Yeah. I, I was wrong. Either he blew up or sat up. He didn't, I don't think, lead out Seneschal to the line. Luca Mezget comes through with 300 metres to go, and it's an uphill finish at uh, Britannia Classic. He started his sprint pretty early, and then Michael Maxis was sitting on his wheel, barely visible, tucked in really really nicely behind him, and then it was a formality in the end. Matthews came out of his wheel with 150 to go and had about 75 metres to celebrate. So a great win for Bling. What did, were you, what did you think about Ekhoff's performance, Benji? Honestly, you could say that it was a bit dumb in the end, in the last kilometre and a half, that he just kept on going even though Matthews was behind in the second group because he hadn't looked back yet and didn't notice that Matthews was gone. And he only had Seneschal in his wheel. And at a certain point, he didn't really blow up in the last kilometre. He actually just sat up because he looked to his left after him and he saw it was only Seneschal. So he just stopped pedaling. And Seneschal probably should have attacked if he was in a better form because I'm guessing that he didn't really have the legs for it, looking at the sprint he did afterwards. But it was a really good move to correct himself by Nils Eikhoff because he just paced so hard that he split up the group, but he left matches behind. So he looked behind, he sees that the gap opens up, and he basically stops pedaling. He waits, and he basically pushes Seneschal to the back of the group that way, because Seneschal didn't move out of his wheel. And that way, we saw Mesgech go on early, Matthews in the wheel, and it basically was written perfectly for Matthews. And it's all thanks to Nils Ekhoff, because otherwise, it would have been really different when it comes to the sprint he would still be favored honestly but it would have been a bit of a bunch sprint without a cough here yeah for sure there are other good sprinters there who had good teammate support uae emirates had a really strong team with uh sergio Anau and mikhail bjerg they actually took up more of the responsibility for bringing back breakaways or, or attacks in the last 10 kilometers than sunweb did and they were riding for uh, Jesper Philipsen, the Belgian sprinter, who just got a race win and seems to be in pretty good form. They So Ekov managed to drop him. Dan McClay, RKS Samzik rider, 
who can win a race here or there, the British sprinter. He actually won the bunch sprint for eighth. So he beat the best of the rest. They dropped him. And another name that I mentioned I wanted to talk about, uh, Ivan Garcia Cortina. I am at a loss for words as to why Garcia Cortina wanted to get into one of those early attacks. So I don't have the exact kilometre readout for you, but wait before Seneschal's move, before Lafay's move, I think there was a Cofidis rider. There were multiple moves in the last 20 to 25 kilometres where the Byron McLaren rider, Garcia Cortina, Spanish rider, maybe the one of the best Spanish rulers at the moment. He's won a stage in Tour of California last year. He won a stage in Paranese this year, uh, which is a massive win and surprised a lot of people, beating Peter Sagan, Case yes. Bol, Buani, uh, Andrea Pascolon, Anthony Turgis, Nizzolo. Nice and beat them in a rolly stage and in not great weather conditions in a pure sprint. And he, he, he beat them easy too. Like, it was a dominant win. And yet today he's trying to get into, you know, latch onto these attacks, get into these breaks with riders that weren't that strong. And it just seemed like that was his strategy, that he didn't want it to come down to a final sprint and he was determined to get into whatever break there was. It made no sense to me. I thought his best strategy for winning was to just hope it came down to a sprint and try and go head-to-head and get on Matthew's wheel. Do you, do you see it any differently? I believe that's very much correct. I just don't have a different opinion on that. And I also would like to talk about something next to that. The fact that we've seen now that a lot of these riders that come out on top are the World Tour riders and such. We've got Emily Hand in there as well, Nippo Delco. I've got a feeling that Nippo Delco was really strong today in general. We talked about Fideli, but I've got the feeling that they just had a good team at the start here. It could also Fideli and Fernandez all three showing their heads in the last 15 kilometers. And I was expecting a bit more from a ride like Gidemai. I don't know if you expected anything from that on this kind of train, but it felt like it was perfect for him. But he basically was, I think, sixth last today. So I think he had a bad day. What do you think about the fact that a team like Nippo Delco can almost come into contention to actually win Bethany Classic here? I like their team. I mean, we have to remember that this was a really weak start list. At the Britannia Classic, um, we we forgot to mention that Ineos and Jumbo Visma didn't even yeah. turn up today uh, because yeah they couldn't be bothered. Well, not not that they could, they could not that they couldn't be bothered, but they just didn't want to bring uh, a team for whatever reason. I assume it's COVID related. Um, yeah, and they, I think they received a fine for that. Bora Hansgrohe had to pull out this morning because one of their riders they haven't named who tested positive for um, for COVID. And even the World Tour teams that did come, you know, Movistar, NTT, etc. like the Movistar team was not, they're a very strong team. You know, they're one of their better classics riders. Uh, Imanol Ervati wasn't even here. So, yeah, I like the performance from Nipodelco Provence today. Obviously, I've got a real soft spot for Hylobinium Karamai. I don't think it was steep enough, the climbs for him today. Um, it was a little bit too... The parkour was too much suiting riders like Christoph and Peak Oliver Nice and etc. I think he's better in more, you know, flesh Wallonia style races than a race like this. That's that's how I see him as a rider, um, to be honest. But 
So I wasn't too. I was hoping he'd do something, but I wasn't too surprised that he didn't too didn't do too well. But Alessandro Fedeli, magic performance from him. He won a stage in the Tour de Limousin um, last week. In fact, he won stage four. So obviously in pretty good form. The Italian rider. He's won a stage in the Tour de Rwanda. So Tour de Rwanda guys. Nippo always sends a team there. Actually has some interesting riders that the riders that win stages there usually do do some things in Europe. Um, at least in the next couple of years. But anything else before we wrap up Britannia Classic, Benji, that you want to get off your chest? Anything anger you? Anything you thought was funny? Nothing really spectacular in the sense that it needs to be added too much towards what we've discussed already. I did notice that next to Eikhoff, we also saw Batistella here. He was, uh, I think, 16th or 17th in the end. So despite him being the official U23 world champion, that's uh, still very controversial, and I'd like to not get into that. But um, it means that we definitely see that the talent from U23 and also the Simmons from the juniors is really showing up there, and I honestly love that. Yeah, I think there's so many young riders. I mean, that's another podcast in itself, going through the list of young young riders that are coming almost straight out of under 23 and are making their mark in in pro cycling it makes sense to me from a physiological perspective but i'll save that discussion for another time this was our wrap-up our first podcast a lantern recycling podcast with benji nyson of the britannia classic quite an interesting race and i'll take any cycling that's on at the moment given the long cancellation the long drought any race is a good race women's race won by lizzie diagnan men's race won by michael matthews the australian Obviously, he's a, he's a fan of the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel, so we're pretty happy with that victory. We've got the Tour de France preview podcast. It's going to be a beast dropping tomorrow, so make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on to listen to that. You're going to need to download that, save it for your rides or a car trip. But that's going to be that was an epic recording session, and you're going to really enjoy that one. But we hope you enjoyed this podcast. But this has been Lantern Rouge with Benji Nyson. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 